Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Warning. This week's Drabblecast has some explicit language. In particular, a few instances of the F-bomb. It's totally tasteful, though, don't worry. (laughs) Like we'd do anything that wasn't tasteful on the Drabblecast. Hello and welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 91. The Drabblecast is a weekly flash fiction podcast magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. Well, tomorrow's Thanksgiving, and to many of us that means football, beer, and pie. To others, it means traffic, dirty dishes, and talking guns. Whatever this special time of the year means to you, it hopefully includes at least a smidgen of reflection about things in your life that you're thankful for. I'm thankful that I live in an age where communication is so easy I can collaborate with talented writers from around the world and make new art with them. I'm thankful that I have a platform to publish content back to the world to entertain people and that I live in a country that allows me to do all this. I'm thankful that scientists have finally pieced together an almost complete genome for the woolly mammoth and that it's very likely that in my lifetime I'll be able to pay some grubby, unkempt carnival worker $16.50 to let my child ride on the back of a cloned mastodon. I'm thankful that chlorine kills fecal bacteria, and that I don't have clinophobia, the fear of beds. I'm thankful for hot chicks, police officers, and badass marine dinosaurs that may or may not still be alive. And I'm thankful for you listeners out there. Mostly just the ones who donate to us, but the rest of you are tolerable. Anyways, on to today's story, Gifting Bliss. Fifteen years later, Jason Avery's Magic is Still Saving the World, by Josh Roundtree. Josh's short fiction has appeared in a variety of magazines and anthologies, including Realms of Fantasy, Polyphony 6, and Lone Star Stories. His first short fiction collection, Can't Buy Me Faded Love, which includes the story Gifting Bliss, is now available from Wheatland Press. Visit www.joshroundtree.com for the full scoop. So without further ado, Gifting Bliss, 15 years later, Jason Avery's Magic is Still Saving the World, by Josh Roundtree. It's hard to imagine that 15 years have passed since the release of Gifting Bliss, a record that as of this show has sold more than 11 million copies and continues to sell several thousand copies per week. This is a testament to the fact that Jason Avery's brand of riotous music and broken soul lyrics remains vital and relevant, even though the spells his songs cast have long ago followed their creator into the realm of legend. I'm Mark Dilfer, and this is Gifting Bliss, Fifteen years later, Jason Avery's magic is still saving the world. The rabid fans that propelled gifting bliss into a worldwide phenomenon have grown beyond the adolescent angst that fueled the band. Yet they remember a time when the magic contained in rock and roll was just a metaphor. And they remember when a band called Broken showed them it was something more. In the wake of their debut album, Scorch, Broken was a band looking for a direction. 
Loved by the local Dallas music scene, but mostly unheard of beyond the dive bars populating Deep Elam, Scorch was a collection of three-minute aural assaults, bare-toothed guitar riffs influenced as much by the heavy metal that Avery claimed to hate as it was by bands with more indie cred, like Wasted Sound and The Pricks. You're messing with my future, but digging up my past. Don't tamper with my genome. Baby, that's all I ask, cause I'm long gone. Long gone. I'm a mastodon. Mastodon. By all accounts, Avery was never pleased with the heavier musical direction original drummer Chris Stein wanted to pursue, and was unhappy when it manifested itself during recording. Here's Avery in a 1993 interview with Urban Guitar. <laughs> and sometimes it's like, I don't know, I started the group, right? And, I mean, I didn't set out to be in a metal band or whatever i i wanted heavy but like i wanted a different kind of heavy this disparity of musical ambitions led to stein's departure not long after the album's release after a series of replacements fell flat avery and bassist tom silvering invited michael grip drummer for the recently dissolved dallas band thud to join the band it's this lineup that broken fans are familiar with and this lineup that entered Sound City Studios in the San Fernando Valley to record the album that changed the world when we return to Gifting Bliss. This week on the hit reality show, Machio's House. He might have been the karate kid, but he sure is a karapi cook. Ralph, the instructions said to preheat the oven for 15 minutes at 475 degrees first. Phyllis, I saw the instructions, but what does it matter if I preheat it, though? What, heat is heat. Well, I it mean did matter, didn't it, Ralph? It mattered to the bunt cake. Look at it, you ruined it. Things don't get easier for Ralph when Sarah calls from college with big news. Dad, I'm a lesbian. What? They say a man who catch fly with chopstick accomplish anything. But does Danielson have what it takes to be there for his daughter this week on Machio's House? Welcome back to Gifting Bliss. Two years of brutal touring had yielded little commercial success, but Griffin Records A&R man Mark Kloss got wind of Broken when they played New York's notorious Shambles Club and decided to put them in the studio and see what happened. Kloss believes the famed Broken Magic was on display that night. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you could feel something weird in that club. That shambles show, that, that was the first time that I felt it. That tingle, you know? How we all came to feel the magic when it was kicking in. It wasn't what it would be, but uh, it was there. I had no frickin' idea, of course, what I was, you know, feeling, but... Uh, I knew enough to figure this band, it was something special. In May 1990, Broken entered the studio with producer Alan Ash, whose work with underground bands like Stack Acid and The Bittering had earned him a rep as someone willing to push musical boundaries. Broken agreed with Griffin's choice of producers, one of the few matters on which they'd see eye to eye in coming years. Ash, however, wasn't entirely prepared for the band's approach to recording. Yeah, that was the uh, first time I met Jason. He's sitting cross-legged in the middle of the studio, surrounded by burning candles. 
The air smelled like flowers and sort of a fog hung in the room. And I'm thinking, you know, this dude is a little off. He's got his guitar in his lap and he's uh, chanting. We're we're there for a pre-production run through of the songs, just a way for me to get a vibe for the music and stuff. And already this guy seems like a flake. So I asked Michael what Jason's doing, and he gave me this weird smile and said, uh, "Oh, he's uh, casting spells." <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, I I blew it off as eccentricity or whatever. But when they kicked into a run-through of Tastes Like Mommy's Lies, I forgot about it completely. God, that song. You know, imagine hearing that song for the first time, not on the radio, but right in front of the guys playing it. I knew straight up it was going to be a hit. And all uh, all of a sudden, I forgot about my hangover. And I'm bouncing around the room, getting into the spirit. You know, it's weird, but uh, it didn't occur to me till long after Tastes became a hit that it, it probably cured my hangover that day. Tastes Like Mommy's Lies was the first song put to tape during the recording sessions, a brutal nest of buzzing guitar chords that somehow still rang with poppy hooks. The song's frank lyrics decreed the failures of the baby boomer generation and the fallout it wreaked on their children. Avery's detachment from the world in the wake of his parents' divorce at age seven is well documented, and his musical output stands testament to the fact that he never recovered. When he sings, Join with me, bleeding kids, don't believe what family is, the stranger can't help but feel the pain of the child inside the man. His voice is coarse, strangled with history, and yet still vulnerable. It is perhaps even more unbelievable, then, that such a cry of anger could yield such a wonderful bounty. It's as if Jason Avery used his own pain to power the magic in his music, and by flushing it from himself and out into the world, it's rendered into something more benign. The power to heal. The power to make dreams real. The power to save lives. Yeti on the run, all alone in the tundra, hunted by the world. Michael Grip, now the frontman for Fabulous Crash, never understood his bandmate's magic, but he knew its source. Ah, man, Jason wasn't too happy, even then. He'd set up all these candles before he recorded a song. Then he'd scribble all these symbols on the walls. Weird shapes and shit that it looked like it was in some sort of alien language. And then he'd howl, man. Just fucking wail, you know? Like he was purging everything he was pissed off about from his soul. I mean, he told me one day when we were recording Gifting Bliss that he wanted the record to change the world, man, to make it better. He wanted it to fulfill all the peace and love dreams the 60s had promised. He said uh, he felt like we were supposed to be living a better life and we'd been cheated or something. (laughs) 
the true ironies of Jason Avery's life is the fact that his mother taught him his spells. He rarely spoke of this, but in an unusual candid interview in 1994, just a month prior to his death, Avery said he should have given his mother a songwriting credit on most of his songs. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> she was into all that weird shit, and, and she taught me, um, but I, I don't know, I never wanted anything to do with magic until I figured out it could make music sound better, or whatever, and I don't know, everything else was just, like, a side effect. Hardcore fans still like to believe that Avery knew exactly what he was doing when he enchanted bits of his soul into songs like Tastes, Hang You, and Antidepressant. All three created a wake of miracles that many more pragmatic members of the public still refuse to believe took place. But by Avery's own admission, the magic was only supposed to improve the music, not make it spiritually transcendent. Ash and the band wrapped recording on Gifting Bliss in June 1991, and after several months of post-production, it was released to the public on September 24, 1991. But even before its release, word of the soon-to-be-legendary album had spread widely through the recording industry. Record company executives, board engineers, and various members of the growing broken entourage began reporting strange occurrences while listening to the music. Old injuries healed, unheralded blasts of creative inspiration, tiny miracles with no explanation, all tied together by one rock and roll record. Broken began a European tour the same week that Gifting Bliss was released in America. As the record grew in popularity and word about what was happening spread slowly to the mainstream, the crowds they attracted grew exponentially larger. Yeah, that's when Jason decided to work his magic into the shows, said Michael Grip in a 2003 interview with Contemporary Drummer. People are digging the fact that the music is working on them. It's causing them to feel some real peace, curing the grandma's asthma or whatever. And so when uh, when that didn't happen at the shows, it was sort of a letdown. The music by itself wasn't enough. Yeah, that uh, <laughs> that that bugged the shit out of us. So Jason, uh, he decided to do something about it. Broken first used live magic during a concert in Brussels, Belgium on December 19, 1991. The band was late in starting and the crowd grew restless, but none realized the delay was due to Avery calling on his angst, forging it into something wonderful, his gift of anger. By all accounts, it was a blistering set, but the glory of the music itself is almost forgotten in the wake of the miracles it spawned that night. 20,000 fans entered the arena with the common pains and maladies of humanity. Injuries, diseases, mental illnesses. And when the concert was over, 20,000 people left these problems behind. They were cured, and though few who weren't there were willing to believe such a miracle, the truth would soon win out. The Brussels show was just the first of many such performances. <laughs> So stinking angry. I'm 
bleeding from a wound in my abdomen. People are running around. There's a hoe and a rake lying in the grass and some hedge clippers on the ground. My pain is like an untrimmed azalea bush growing farther than the eye can see. Tears falling down my eyes before I die from a gardening catastrophe. Upon their return to the United States, Broken was astonished at its own popularity. A U.S. tour began in the spring of 1992, and shows sold out far in advance. Word of the Brussels miracle had spread, and Avery was obliged to bring magic into more and more live shows. He didn't always work the spells before the shows. It took a lot out of him. But when he did, man, the results were amazing. Fans flocked to the shows, many just in hopes of being healed. The music fixed everything. Cancer, AIDS, heart conditions. Those who left with their miracles in hand became fans for life. Those who left without them felt cheated, and small-scale riots were not uncommon. Avery had a hard time understanding this backlash. It's like... I can't just work the magic every night, okay? I mean, I've said that publicly. It, it takes something out of you. And whatever that is, it's not in unlimited supply. I made a record, you know? We made a record. And you can buy a copy whenever you want. And you know, most of these people bitching already have. And, and that's my soul right there on that disc. I... So what if the record just cures headaches and makes you feel kind of peaceful or kind of high? So what if it doesn't make you jump out of your wheelchair and walk? Man, that's, it's good fucking music. And that means something. I'm a guitar player, man. I didn't sign on to be the world's savior. His confusion turned to resentment near the end of his life when he was famously quoted in an MTV interview. Yo, 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 this is your boy, Plesiosaur. Got your main magic man, Jason Ava Rizzle, up in here. Gonna talk about his magic. Yo, speak on that. Man, fuck the ones that only care about the magic. I care about the music. I don't fucking need fans like that. But the more people who are healed by Broken's music, the more it was expected of them. The pressure to bring the magic to bear each night was intense, and Avery was showing signs of breaking. Stories of heroin use and several near-death overdoses leaked to the press, but this garnered no sympathy for rock and roll's messiah. Instead, it created an even more fervent demand for his gift. Fans were terrified that he'd die before they were able to experience it for themselves. Broken entered the studio in March of 1993 to record the much-awaited follow-up to Gifting Bliss. of ringworm. So I took you to the vet, and they gave me some lotion, told me everything was set. You're my fungal feline. The result was a chaotically beautiful record, full of wry lyrics and growling guitars. Take No More was released to mobbed record stores on September 21st, 1993. But Jason Avery had once again defied fan expectations. 
he'd entered the studio without his magic. Take No More was an indictment of the fans who'd used him for their own gain. Though the music was even heavier than the earlier Broken albums, Avery's anger was far less focused. Take No More was the product of a songwriter coming to the realization that no matter what he'd achieved, he was just as doomed to failure as the older generation he resented. What he had to give the world, however extraordinary, would never be enough. Fan reaction to Take No More was mixed. Most agreed that the songwriting had grown even stronger, but those who worshipped the magic edged toward revolt. Jason Avery was still letting the world have his music, but he was keeping the magic for himself. Never was this more apparent than his final live appearance, Broken's legendary MTV Unplugged performance just a month prior to Avery's death. Stripping away the searing guitars that drove their music, and with Avery's magic conspicuously absent, Broken played a transcendent mix of hit songs and cover tunes that proved once and for all that they were one of the finest rock and roll bands ever to take the stage, with or without enchantment. It's been seven hours and fifteen days Since you took your love away Avery appeared to be a man finally at peace with his place in the world, able to accept the magic that overshadowed his music and to move forward on his own terms. All throughout Broken's final tour, he'd kept the magic at bay, and though many fans couldn't understand why he'd keep it from them, this final performance at last forged an understanding between the would-be messiah and his followers. Jason Avery had no magic left for the world, but his music was enough. But nothing, I said nothing can take away these blues Because nothing compares, nothing compares It's like, I don't know, I've never been so excited about a show. No wall of noise, no magic, it was just us. Three guys making music and making people smile. I mean, what the fuck is better than that, huh? Jason Avery seemed to have made peace with his world, but one month later, he was dead. His body was found in his North Dallas mansion, April 1994. No cause of death was immediately apparent. Lying on the bedroom floor, arms wrapped around his acoustic guitar, it appeared to investigators that he'd simply died while playing. Further investigation turned up the tape recorder he'd used to record his last hour on Earth, and though it could not be medically proven, it was finally determined that Jason Avery had committed suicide. This tape was never released to the public in its entirety, though bootleg recordings of that final song are readily available on the internet. In a strained voice, Avery delivers his farewell to the world. One more time with the magic, then begins to strum. One can almost picture the candles burning in a circle around him, the runes, the cryptic drawings and other bits of mystic arcana that he used to fuel his music, all with him at the end. Listeners claim that this last song can bring on headaches, grow tumors, spread disease. Regardless of whether this is the case, the magic in the song came from a darker part of Jason Avery's soul, a place filled with self-loathing and perceived failure. 
Magic and Broken's record still lives. Every year, more fans discover its healing properties and the way it seems to cleanse the soul. We're left to wonder what new musical magic Avery might have created had he not taken his own life. But Jason Avery will forever be defined by three years of stunning rock and roll that changed the world. And despite his best efforts, history won't remember the man that Jason Avery wanted to be, but the man that he was. Hopeful, brilliant, broken. We still have the music, and for most, that's enough. Well, that was our story. Hope you dug it. How about a little story feedback? For our Halloween special, we ran a story with ghouls, gangsters, and gore called The Boxborn Wraith by Kevin Anderson. This one was a hit. Zaka said, Yes, Kevin Anderson and Halloween go so well together. I love the combination. This story had my complete attention from start to finish. That doesn't happen a lot, because it kept going in so many directions I didn't expect, and also because of the wonderful production of Master Sherman. Aw, thanks. Ignoranus, one of the more colorful member names we've had in the forums in a while, loved the story, but thought the story in the Halloween cheesy-themed intro and outro kind of jarred. The story was kind of creepy and pretty absorbing, he said, and then at the end, the silliness of the outro just kind of killed all the residual creepiness that the story itself left me with. Speaking of jarringly different, the first half of the story was really creepy, what with the protagonist getting buried alive and all, all the way up to the point where the ghouls took him captive and brought him back before their people. From that point on, it was extremely predictable, still well-written and enjoyably produced, but not really scary or surprising in any way. Stick Vantra Shell of Lob agreed, saying the first part of the story was a good example of a standard horror piece, but the second part fell flat for me. Not that it was bad, but I was expecting the tone of the first section to carry throughout the piece. I was very surprised when it didn't. We love hearing from listeners. You can comment at our website at www.drabblecast.org, or you can join our discussion forums and get in more depth. At our website, we also have a separate feed of the Drabblecast, an MP3 form, if you'd rather have that than the format we use in our main feed. And we also have a few donation options if you're interested in helping us out. Using credit card or PayPal, you can donate once or subscribe for five bucks a month. All donations are greatly appreciated and help us pay our authors for their stories. Well, that's all for this week. The Drabblecast uses a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license, which means you can share the magic with whoever you like. Just don't change our shit, man, and make sure it's free admission. Our staff is made up of co-editors Kendall Marchman, who was once the frontman for the Blind Love Monkeys, Luke Coddington, who played bass for Hot Father before they split up in 82, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you of our 1974 interview with Podcast Weekly. It was like, no wall of noise, you know? No magic. Just us. Just three guys making a podcast and making people smile. I mean, what the fuck is better than that, right? The evening saunters to closing. The waitress turns chairs upside down. Piano player picks up his tip jar and drink, and the bartender shouts last round. An hour ago, this place was 
Every five minutes, a transplant candidate dies while waiting for a compatible heart, liver, or kidney. Imagine a technology that could provide those life-saving transplant organs for a high price and imagine what a company would do to monopolize that technology. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists unlocks this holy grail of medicine by reverse engineering the genomes of all mammals, creating an animal with organs perfectly suitable for human transplantation. They envisioned a docile herd animal, but one team member had another, darker vision. This ancestor is anything but docile. The team's work spawns something big, something evil, something very, very hungry. Ancestor is a complete serialized fiction podcast by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler with all episodes available. Binge the entire story now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.